Our Father, I thank you for these families that have come tonight, uh, those who are live streaming with us, and those who will view this uh, in the several months to come as they come to a critical juncture in their life as to how best they can shape the hearts and souls of their little ones. And so I, I pray for our time this evening that you would be honored by it, uh, that you'd speak to the heart of each and every parent that comes, those who will listen later. And we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. All right, home education, why do it? Uh, you have an outline this evening that you should have picked up as you came in. Let me share just a little bit of perspective before we get into the detailed notes of why we host this seminar. When my wife and I uh, moved from Texas to, I had finished uh, my doctorate in Texas and we came here to pastor this church, uh, we were inundated with home education questions. In fact, uh, there was only one other couple in the entire, entire county who was home educating. And uh, he was a professional tennis player, lived over in Hilton Head, and then there was my wife and I. And so we had just tons of questions and I said, Audrey, I, I feel like I'm, spending so much of my counseling time and other things just answering questions on home education why don't we just get people together and we'll do a seminar and so about 70 people showed up and the questions kept coming so we did about two a year until about uh, six or seven years ago and we've had actually over 3,000 uh, families who have gone through this particular homeschool a seminar. When we did it with COVID, we had people in 30 states that were live streaming with us, largely through the California Association that promoted it. And many people will view this later on. And this is important to people because they realize something is taking place in our nation. Some of you uh, have already uh, children who are old enough to be educated in a formal sense. Some of you, your children are not there yet. But this is the time to ask and answer these questions because before you know it, they will be there. Um, and so that's why we do these. Now, uh, this evening, if you'll pull out your uh, outline, you can take as many notes as you want or you can just sit and vegetate. <laughs> that's totally up to you. Uh, but God wrote uh, in the book of Ecclesiastes uh, through Solomon by the inspiration of the Spirit, there's nothing new under the sun. And of course, when... The men of Pentecost uh, came out. Uh, the, the crowds were absolutely flabbergasted that these people spoke with such authority, not having been educated in their formal schools. And I think more and more, this is beginning to happen with those who are choosing home education. Uh, of course, COVID created a unique situation. 50 million students were at home uh, live streaming uh, in one form or format or another. And a lot of parents became aware of what their children were actually being taught. And some were frightened, some were angry, all kinds of reactions. What it's resulted in is we've gone from about five, between four and 5% of those who were homeschooling prior to COVID to right now 11% of the students in America are being home, education, home educated. And that creates a real threat to some people. Harvard Magazine is an interesting publication. It's put out by Harvard Law School, and this was on the cover of uh, a magazine just put out. Uh, this, this is the cover two years ago, and it was entitled The Risks of Homeschooling. 
And Elizabeth Bartholet, who's a professor at Harvard Law School, wrote, and I quote, a rapidly increasing number of American families are opting out of sending their children to school, choosing instead to educate them at home. And she actually wrote this article right before COVID began. And uh, it came out during COVID. And so she had a concern. Let me read her concern. She expresses it in this way. She said, homeschooling not only violates children's rights to a meaningful education and their right to be protected from potential child abuse, but also to keep them from contributing positively to a democratic society. We have an essentially unregulated regime in the era of homeschooling. She goes on to assert all 50 states have laws that make education compulsory and state constitutions ensure a right to education. But if you look at the legal regime governing homeschooling, there are few requirements that parents do anything. That means effectively that people can homeschool who've never gone to school themselves, who don't read or write themselves. Well, that paragraph in this Harvard publication was just filled and riddled with error and inconsistencies. In fact, as we'll see, uh, homeschooling is legal in all 50 states, and it's actually regulated, and depending on the states, uh, it indeed, uh, there's various requirements. And so uh, here on this graphic, uh, they, they picture kids being homeschooled. And again, this is the cover of Harvard Magazine. And you have this child who's being homeschooled, if you can make it out. It looks like um, the little girl here is imprisoned. And all the other children are outside, you know, having a great time. And, uh, and you can see there's some books here. Uh, it says reading, arithmetic, the Bible, writing. Now, in the original publication that came out, uh, this, remember, this is put together by Harvard University. I thought it was funny. They spelt arithmetic wrong. Do you see it? Um, here's this lady saying that people are uh, ill-equipped and are unable to homeschool, and they spelt the word arithmetic wrong. Uh, when they uh, put it out in a correction, they, they corrected it. But I had a copy before they, uh, before they messed it up. Um, in either case, um, she goes on to say that people can homeschool who've never gone to school themselves, who don't read or write themselves. That's just not true. You know, I often tell people, um, in, at least in the realm of theology, represent people fairly. If you're going to refute their position, don't create a straw man. If anything, create an iron man. Uh, be fair to their position uh, before you do analysis of it. Here's a uh, there's the correction. This is uh, Professor Bart Bartlett, in case you're interested. And she just wrote an 80-page paper that was in the Arizona Law Review, and she said this. Surveys of homeschoolers show that a majority of such families, by some estimates up to 90%, are driven by conservative Christian beliefs and seek to remove their children from mainstream culture. And there's probably a lot of truth to this. Remember, now, she wrote this right before COVID hit. It came out in the height of COVID, the actual article. But I would say that that's probably pretty accurate, um, at least in the, until the last two years. Now a lot of parents, not necessarily born-again Christians, but moral people are having real problems with the kind of things their children are being exposed to. 
Anyway, she goes on to say that these parents are um, teaching extreme religious ideologies. They question science. They promote female subservience and white supremacy. So again, there's this agenda. Now, you say, well, what does this woman from Harvard have to do with us? Well, she's actually a key uh, player in education in America. And she has a conference planned in 2024 that will bring in um, lawyers, uh, uh, various uh, legislators uh, on a national and state level to try to um, argue that homeschooling should be curtailed, if not abolished. She definitely has an agenda, this woman. Um, so with that said, uh, all I'm saying is that not everyone is friendly to homeschooling, that there are things that are happening out there that are new. When we came to South Carolina to home educate our children, we came from Texas where there was more people homeschooling there uh, but the fact is, in South Carolina, there was a great hostility to homeschooling. In fact, there were more cases pending in South Carolina courts against homeschoolers than in all 50 states combined. And so, when my wife and I effectively brought home education to Beaufort County, because I said, there, as I said, there was only one other couple in the whole county that was home educating their children, um, a whole lot of people all at once began to homeschool. And it became a real threat even to the local school board. All that has changed. So what I want to do tonight is I want to begin with the history of education in America. Why talk about the history of education in America? Because God himself will often give us historical perspective, one, to keep us from error, but also that we can learn from maybe other people's failures. The Apostle Paul made this statement. He said, for whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction, so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. And of course, the earlier times that he's referring to here is the Old Testament era. Remember, for the first decade in, after the church is born at Pentecost, there were no New Testament books. So when the church gathered on Sunday morning, they read Isaiah or Genesis or Malachi, or that's all they had, along with the apostles' teaching. But they didn't have books of the Bible yet because they were being written. So it's nearly a decade into the church that they began to read the New Testament letters and epistles. With that said, they didn't discount the Old Testament. And Paul reminds us here at the end of Romans that historically speaking, what God recorded in the Old Testament is just as much inspired. In fact, he'll write in 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 11 that the Old Testament was written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. And so there's great truth that we can learn from studying biblical history, and there's a lot that we can learn from studying really much, a lot of history. Because history often repeats itself. And two, when sometimes you study history, and in this case, the history of education in America, it gives us some perspective of where we came from and how we got to where we are today. Have you ever wondered, you know, how education really began, what it was like when our nation had all these people from Western Europe moving here to the United States to establish a new country? And how did it go from the kind of education we had in our first hundred years to the kind of education we're seeing today? 
Um, Martin Luther, one of the Protestant reformers, made this statement. He said, I'm afraid that the schools will prove the very gates of hell unless they diligently labor in examining the Holy Scriptures and engraving them in the hearts of youth. I advise no one to place his child where the Scriptures do not reign paramount. Every institution in which men are not unceasingly occupied with the Word of God must be corrupt. Now, Martin Luther made that statement several hundred years ago, but he was certainly right on track. And I hope to demonstrate this evening that if that's not true in our homes, if the scriptures do not reign paramount, then someone else's ideas and philosophies will reign. You know, people sometimes accuse evangelicals of brainwashing their kids. And I say, well, of course they're brainwashing them. Everyone's being brainwashed. The question is, who's washing your brain? What's the worldview that's shaping the way you think? And, and Luther's point was, it must be scripture. Bartholad, again, the professor at Harvard, and again, she's a key player. And you're going to hear her name more and more, I think, in the next few years, especially with some of these national conferences that are coming up. Uh, she said, the issue is, do we think that parents should have 24-7 essentially authoritarian control over their children from ages 0 to 18? I think that's dangerous. I think it's always dangerous to put powerful people in charge of the powerless and to give the powerful ones total authority. Now remember, she's a key player in shaping the National Education Organization. We'll speak about that organization a little bit later here in the seminar this evening. But she's saying it's dangerous for you as parents to have control over your children. I guess they feel like they're more qualified. Now, that may seem radical, but we've seen it played out, of course, especially in the state of Virginia at the last election, where parents were absolutely enraged that some of their basic rights and protections that have always been honored under the Constitution were being challenged. Um, here's Dr. Dobson. Most of you know him. He's on our radio station. Um, the original founder focused on the family, and he's no longer with that organization, but with another organization that he started. And he made this statement. He said, in the state of California, if I had children there, I would not put that youngster in a public school. It's time to get the children out. Now, I have to give Dr. Dobson credit for the fact that um, in the 1970s, he began to put on the radio in one of his daily broadcasts, a gentleman whom I'll discuss a little bit later on, who was whom we consider the grandfather of home education, Dr. Raymond Moore. The grandfather of home education in terms of its rebirth in the 1970s. But he really wasn't behind home education. He just said, look, we need people in the public school, the private school. He's totally flipped on this, totally changed his view because he realized how deep the downgrade was. Here's a picture of Timothy Dwight. He's the grandson of Jonathan Edwards. He was the eighth president of Yale University. And uh, he lived during the time of the start of the public school movement in its, really, in its seedling forms. Uh, he wrote in 1817, to commit our children to the care of the irreligious people 
is to commit lambs to the superintendency of wolves. That's kind of interesting because uh, when you think about what was actually going on in America at that point in terms of some of the very, very small and expressions of public education, it seemed virtually harmless. But still he understood the principle that the one who educates, if they're not driven by a Christian worldview, then they can do great harm to our children. So let's think about there in your note-taking outline, this is all by way of introduction, some of the key dates in American history. We'll just hit some of the highlights here, and we won't spend a huge amount of time on. First, 1620, which really marks the start of Christian education in America. Uh, in the New England colonies and in Pennsylvania, under Governor William Penn, um, they wanted to make sure their children were educated primarily so that they could read the Bible, read the scriptures. And what began to take place is more and more people were coming to make America their home, this new land, but fewer and fewer teachers were available to instruct the kids. And so typically in early America, the most educated person in any given community was the preacher. And so uh, they literally would use the pastor to educate the children for those children who are not being taught by their parents. Not everyone was literate in America at the time. If you were, then you, for the most part, trained your own children. Virtually, at the start of America, everyone was home educated. The exception would be for those parents who were not equipped and educated, and that's where the church house became the one-room schoolhouse. These are actually some very, very old one-room schoolhouses where they served as a church on Sunday, and on, during the week, they served as the place where people would gather. Uh, the Puritans taught that moral instruction was essential to the health of a child and to the health of a nation because they understood as the family went, so would go the nation. And so for them, for them the Bible was an integral part of education, and that was woven in in the 17th in 18th century. 1636, um, there's another one-room schoolhouse, there's another one. 1636, the founding of Harvard College. Of course, it was called Harvard College at that point. John Harvard recognized that only a handful of pastors would be willing to migrate to the New World from Europe, and so he had a burden to provide a vehicle in which men who felt called to the ministry to minister to this new growing population where they could be educated. And so Harvard was started. It was started, quote, on the uh, gateposts. The original gateposts are not there, but right next to the original gateposts, if you visited Harvard, they have uh, some new gateposts with the original writing on it, and it was literally to train illiterate clergy. clergy. That's why they were started, to train illiterate clergy. In fact, uh, over 50% of the graduates of the seven, in the 17th century, in the 1600s, were all pastors. Um, the rest were people in one form or another uh, for other fields. 106 of the first 108 colleges in America were founded by a church, a denomination, or some religious group. Uh, here is the original uh, oh, here's a picture of uh, Reverend John Harvard. Uh, you've seen this statue if you've been on the Harvard campus. 
And here is their original uh, seal. Um, it's in Latin, Christo, Ecclesia. Um, and so you can see truth for Christ and the church. Um, they changed it many, many years ago, and now they just have veritas, meaning truth. So they had a very Christ-centered goal is they considered the church and the people in America who needed to be reached. Uh, they had uh, trained a number of people who became missionaries to the Indians and so forth. Um, but there was some commonality in these early schools in terms of a Christian worldview. In fact, in 1647, the old Deluder Act was passed in Massachusetts Bay Colony. And uh, they said in a community where there was at least 50 households, they encouraged someone to be able to teach and train the children to read and write so that, quote, that old deluder Satan uh, would not be able to keep men from the knowledge of East Scripture. Uh, similar acts were adopted in other New England colonies. Uh, and again, this, this was not public education. This was all church-run education. And it was... Um, not a requirement, but a, a very strong act to say, this is what you should aspire towards. If you have at least 50 households in your town, there should be some form of education to help the children learn the, to read and write so that they can learn the Bible. 1776, when our nation is formally founded, uh, public education is nearly extinct. In fact, on our nation's birthday, there's only one public school in America. And in the truest sense, it wasn't public, and that it's what we call a private dame school. The dame schools were uh, almost always run by, uh, by women, occasionally men. That was usually done in their home. There were no accrediting agencies, no state-approved textbooks. And again, the Bible was central. Uh, they were often sometimes called a charity school. Here's a picture of John Adams. According to Adams, people who were coming to America were absolutely amazed at how well-educated these colonists were. And so he said in his journal, he said, um, I have never seen, he's actually quoting uh, a traveler from England uh, in his journal, and that traveler said, I have never seen so much knowledge and civility among the common people in any part of the world. A Native American who cannot read or write is as rare in appearance as a comet or an earthquake. So that was a visitor's assessment that Adam uh, recorded there in his journal. Let's move into the 19th century, some other critical dates. Uh, in 1818, the uh, public primary school system begins. And this year marks really a, a complete reversal of the free market education theory that had been pretty much operating in our country up until this point. Um, 13 years earlier, before 1818 and 1805, the Unitarians had taken over Harvard. Some of you have heard the term Unitarian, and it certainly can mean different things at different times in the age of that denomination. But fundamentally to Unitarianism, uh, as they took over Harvard, was a denial of the doctrine of the Trinity, a denial of the deity of Christ, a denial of the authority of Scripture. So Harvard was becoming liberal. Uh, they had lost their, their way uh, from when they had started in the 1600s. And so in 1805, 
these liberal theologians were moving in and were beginning to uh, change the way those who were being educated there thought. Um, they wanted to control education in America. Why? Because they felt like if they could control education, they could, in essence, uh, take their worldview and get people to embrace it. And so, nonetheless, um, it took a long time for this to happen, but they were visionaries and they were patient. Uh, here's a photo of William Holmes McGuffey. Um, he was a college president and professor. Most of you maybe know him for his works known as the McGuffey Reader. And uh, they didn't read, you know, see Jane Ron or Jump Spot Ron. The first grader, for instance, read, I have a set of McGuffey Readers back in my library. It says, God made the world and all the things in it. And so this is the kind of reader that children were using in the early days as these various reflections of education. And I'll get into some of the different things that were happening at this point. But they felt, again, that the moral training of a child was essential to have a safe and a sane culture. Uh, there are two books that were published in 1835, one by Andrew Reed and the other by James Matheson. These were British congregational pastors. Congregationalism, of course, today is, for the most part, totally apostate in the New England uh, churches. There's a few conservative uh, congregational churches, but at this time, it was a Bible-believing denomination. And here's a photo of Andrew Reed. Uh, he wrote a book called A Narrative of the Visit to the American Churches because America seemingly was being blessed. They were prospering and growing like no other nation in the world. And he came uh, with his other pastor, James Matheson, wanting to know what their secret was. And of course, uh, this is a quote that President Reagan used in a speech but it was not actually by Edmund Burke, and no one can find the quote that was credited to Edmund Burke, but Edmund Burke is credited with this, but it wasn't written by him. It was written by Andrew Reed, and it was slightly adapted, but it says, he said, America will be great, and America is great, because America is good. But if her goodness were to vanish away, it would descend like a dark cloud of evil on this nation. Uh, Edmund Burke is credited with saying, America is great because America is good. If America ever ceases to be great, America will cease to be good. But again, no one can find that quote in Edmund Burke's, but one of uh, Reagan's speechwriters put it into a speech. And so, you know, we quote that all the time. But it's really Andrew Reed who basically said that, that the greatness of America was seen in the fact that there was moral greatness behind it. Um, 1837, public education spreads through Horace Mann. Uh, here is a uh, photo of Horace Mann in 1837. He lives in Massachusetts. He's appointed the uh, Secretary of Education um, to promote public education in Massachusetts and across America. Now remember, until 1837, virtually all the schools in America were private. You were either homeschooled or you were in a private dame school. But there's a movement that's beginning to emerge in America for formal public education. Horace Mann himself was a Unitarian. And again, Unitarianism by this point had developed to the point where they're very humanistic. Their worldview is really anti-scripture. 
And so they've drifted from uh, the historical roots of Christianity that America was founded on. And of course, uh, Mann was, Horace Mann was encouraging people to go to Europe to get degrees, uh, not from Harvard or Yale or Dartmouth, that still had some Christian reflections in them. But again, they were adrift. Uh, but to go to schools like uh, Bonn in Germany and uh, places in Paris and Edinburgh and so forth, because those schools at that point were thoroughly liberal. And he convinced a lot of men to go overseas and to study, and they came back with a uh, skepticism, uh, 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 a radical existentialism uh, that reflected uh, no God, no morals, and he was pleased because he could begin to uh, let these values seep into the American public. He started the very first teacher's college in America, um, there in Massachusetts, so that those who are going to teach in the public schools that were small in number at that point would nonetheless have to go through this uh, approved uh, school of sorts. Let me just mark uh, two more 19th century dates. 1849, uh, Protestants formally support the public school system. Now, I think it's important just for me to say that initially, again, by Protestants, I mean evangelical Christians. Uh, they were fearful of the government school system again, because they felt like um, they might reflect values that were anti-God and anti-Bible. And so they went back and forth, you know, should we, should we put our kids in there, should, should we not? And um, they finally uh, wrote in the Protestant General Assembly of Massachusetts, as it was called then, um, they recorded this in their minutes, it is a great evil to withdraw from the established system of common schools. That's what public schools were called at this point. It's a great evil to withdraw from the established system of common schools, the influence and the interests of the religious part of the community. If, after a full and faithful experiment, it should at last be seen that fidelity to the religious interests of our children forbids further patronage of this system, we can unite with the evangelical Christians and the establishment of private schools in which fuller doctrinal religious instruction may be possible. So they, they yielded. They weren't against the dame schools, the Christian schools, but they said, on the other hand, if we withdraw our influence from the public schools, it's going to have a negative impact on these children that are going there. And if time proves that we're wrong, then we'll leave and we'll abandon. Well, it's much more difficult sometimes to reverse a decision once it's been made. And so by 1870, that was in 1849, by 1870, Protestant schools were virtually gone. There was one religious school, I'm talking about lower education, that was still in existence. It was, a, it was a one Lutheran school that still existed in the state of Missouri. And so the Christian schools, however they were expressed, were literally wiped off the map. That brings us into the 20th century. And again, I'm just hitting some major dates here. 1900, um, I used, we used to do this seminar in a half a day uh, rather than in an hour. And we went through much more detail. So I'm just hitting some of the highlights. 700,000 students are in US high schools. So at the start of the 20th century, uh, they'd gone again from 
uh, virtually no public schools in our early years to uh, 700,000 students being in high schools. Um, interestingly, today we've gone from 69 public schools that were in existence in 1860. We have stats for that year. Today we have 26,000. I'm talking about high schools, public high schools. Today we have 26,407 public high schools. That works out to about 528 per state. So um, things had really changed, is what I'm trying to say. Here's another key influencer. His name is John Dewey. Many of you have heard of him. You've heard of the Dewey Decimal System, right? Named after him. Um, he is titled the father of progressive education. He is the founder of an organization known as the American Humanist Association. In 1933, he penned a do document known as the Humanist Manifesto. And of course, one of his chief goals was to take uh, the values that were expressed in the Humanist Manifesto and somehow to be able to integrate those into the public school system. That was his goal. That was his dream. He didn't live to see it fulfilled, but the ideas that he had planted ultimately um, were fleshed out in time. Dewey, among other things, believed that science was to trump the scriptures, that evolutionary theory was not theory but fact. And so in the 1933 Humanist Manifesto, um, he and 33 others signed, among other things they said, quote, truth is relative, there are no absolutes, the evolutionary model is true, there is no God, and man has no soul. He becomes the first honorary president of the NEA, most of you have heard that, the National Education Association, and sadly, a lot of those ideals are embraced today. Um, his strategy was very well thought out. He wrote these words. He said, change must come gradually. To force it unduly would compromise its final success by favoring a violent reaction. In other words, his godless, socialistic, Marxist ideas, he said, you just have to implement it gradually, you have to be patient, or the people will become angry and, exist, and resist. Here's another man, his name is Charles Potter. He was really a disciple of Dewey. He's a Unitarian pastor. And he's a, he's a founder of the Euthanasia Society of America and one of the original signers with Dewey of the American Manifesto. Uh, he wrote in his book in 1930 these words. He said, education is thus a most powerful ally of humanism. And every public school is a school of humanism. What can a theistic Sunday school meeting for an hour once a week and teaching only a fraction of the children due to stem the tide of a five-day program of humanistic teachings. Of course, he's asking the question rhetorically. And the answer is practically nothing. And the humanists understood this. And this is important because it's the National Education Association today that is controlling American public education. And so while all public school teachers don't embrace the value system of the NEA, they are nonetheless uh, shaping the scope of education in America. Uh, and we'll see how they were able to do that here in this next major year 
1957, where federal education for the first time comes to the American public schools. Up until this time, while the US government had had some involvement in terms of affirming the need for children to be educated, uh, all of the funding for public education to this point was done on the state level. So it's not until 1957, for the first time in American history, that the federal government begins to underwrite um, financially education in America. And this was Dewey's goal. Why did, why did he have this as a goal? Because he knew that basically people will respond to money. And if they could control the school system in America from the top up, if they could make the states dependent on federal funds, then they could control what would be taught on a state level. And so it basically was the start of a national school board. Um, in 1956, when it was totally run by states and communities, there was 26,000 local school boards in America. Today, there's approximately 1,800. So the whole idea of parental involvement, parental control, because it's done on the state community level, began to change and began to change very, very fast. And, and a lot of Americans were very much in tune to this. You mean I can drop my children off? In fact, you'll feed them not only breakfast, but lunch. You'll give them a laptop uh, as we've generated into these uh, stages. And in fact, the Biden administration has come out and said that um, they are going to hold hostage, I think, beginning in 2024. They've given them like 18 months to respond from the time the edict went out from the president and executive order that unless transgender policies are reflected in the uh, public schools, that they will lose federal money. And by this, they mean restrooms, locker rooms, and so forth. Um, now, I'm almost finished before the history is over. Two more key dates. 62-63, uh, prayer and Bible reading is outlawed from public schools. Now, it took a little bit of time for that to flesh out. Um, when I was in school in the 60s, they still read a Bible passage. My wife, uh, who's two years younger than I, until like 69, uh, they still did Bible memory verses in the schools that she went in, but that all, all gradually changed. Madeline Murray O'Hare, of course, had her son, William Murray, as a plaintiff um, in a case where she wanted to remove prayer from the public schools. And of course, uh, in 1980, um, here he is here, he actually became a born-again believer. So here he is, he's raised in a home that's godless. I actually heard her speak when I was a campus pastor at the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill. And if a, a man of God could be filled and empowered by the Spirit and you could sense that, well, if an individual could be filled and empowered by the evil one, you could sense that. And I tell you, I've never heard anyone quite like her before or since. It's like she was empowered by the evil one. Of course, when her son became a Christian, she said, quote, one could call this a postnatal abortion on the part of a mother. I guess I repudiate him entirely and completely for now and all times. He is beyond human forgiveness. 
And of course, after the outlaw of prayer in 1962 and 63, they outlawed Bible reading in the schools. That brings us to 1965, another key, key date. Um, thousands of Christian schools are started really in response to what is beginning to happen in America. Um, many conservative Protestants, uh, local churches started Christian schools. Uh, there were different motivations, different reasons, but primarily and largely a reaction to the godless introduction of a new set of values. Evolution, of course, during the time of the Scopes trials um, was supposedly decided, but it's really not until the 1960s that it's reflected in the textbooks. In a fourth grade class, I can still see her Miss Weeks, she stands up in the class, she said, now I don't believe this children, but I'm required to teach it, and it's called the theory of evolution. And so there's a, a new movement that is beginning to unfold. You know, it's really the start of what you read in Romans chapter 1. When a people or a nation refuse to give God no acknowledgement, no praise or no thanks, God gives them over. And so we said, no, we can't have prayer. We can't have the Bible. Evolution must be taught as the way the world was created. So God gave the nation over to sensuality. And you see the whole sexual revolution begin to unfold in the 70s and 80s. But man didn't repent. And again, God doesn't force this on people. He allows them to go their own way. And because men didn't repent, he allowed them to go further into sin. And the next phase is homosexuality. And so homosexuality begins to unfold in the nation. And if a nation doesn't repent, the third phase in Romans 1 is God gives the people over to a depraved mind. Um, it's a, adamikos is a Greek word. It's, it's an interesting word. It's translated in the Russian Bible, an upside down mind, where people call good evil and evil good, sweet, bitter, bittersweet. It's an upside down mind. And that's really where our nation is now. It's beyond belief some of the things that they are trying to do, some of the ideas they are trying to legislate, but that's what happens. And of course, um, it was just small, small expressions, but big enough for Christian parents to see we need to get our kids out. 1975 was the rebirth of the home education movement. And largely through two people, John Holt and Dr. Raymond Moore and his wife, Dorothy Moore, home education came back as an educational option. Of course, it was resisted. You know, how can a parent teach his child at home? How is this possible? Um, 2023, uh, you have the growth of the home education movement. Again, it's been legal in all 50 states since 1981. Again, it's birthed in the 70s. States fought it, but eventually they said, okay. And of course, the results were astounding in terms of those who were home educated. They were outscoring, outtesting uh, the average public school teacher, uh, students. Um, but in 2023, you see this, again, burgeoning movement largely because COVID woke a lot of parents up. We've been trying to wake them up for 30 years, 
but they woke a lot of parents up to what their children were actually being exposed to. So that's kind of a brief history, all right? Everybody with me? Let's go to Roman numeral two. Let's talk about some of the advantages of home education. I think the number one chief reason, at least Bible-believing Christians, choose to get out of the government school system is because, A, there in your outline, you can give your children added protection from the world. You can give your children added protection from the world. Paul said this in Romans 16, 19. He said, for the report of your confidence is reached to all, therefore I am rejoicing over you. But I want you to be wise in what is good and innocent in what is evil. Likewise, in 1 Corinthians 15, 33, a similar statement he pens by the Spirit of God, do not be deceived, bad company corrupts good morals. Now, if you know both of these passages, the bad company that Paul is referring to is false teachers. He's referring to those who, with their false view of life, contrary to Scripture, are corrupting good morals. And of course, that can express itself in many, many ways today. But bad company corrupts good morals. And so if you have a government school system, I was just, I was listening to my satellite radio coming in this morning and they had this lady on who um, started this new organization to alert parents about two states, uh, specifically Minnesota and California, that if your children want to have transgender surgery or the needed chemicals to change the way God made them, at least an attempt to, they can do there and be protected. And so she wants parents to be alerted because some of these children are running away from home. They're going to the state of California or Minnesota, and they're having things done to them that are just reprehensible. And of course, her goal is to alert all these parents so that because of social media and other things, uh, that uh, their kids need to be protected. But she really missed it. She totally missed it. What she didn't see is the root problem is, is all these children who are in the government schools, whose minds are being you know, tainted with sin and evil, with bad company, that this is normal. Um, there were 19 books on this list. There's now just 17. The two that were removed were, if you opened them up, they were just pornographic. These 19 books were found in public schools here in Beaufort County, everywhere from uh, grammar school to middle school to high school. Now, there's a procedure in our county that if someone protests against a book, they can't just remove it. They have to study it and evaluate it before it can be removed. Two of them they removed because when you opened them up, there were just pornographic pictures in them. The others they were reviewing. But when I read some of the synopses on these various books, they're not good. So I know we're in a more conservative state, but the fact is, is that transgenderism, homosexuality, lesbianism, um, sexual impropriety on every level by heterosexuals is spreading. And when our children are exposed in that environment hour after hour, 
they're going to be influenced. I'm not saying that everyone in the public school system is you know, evil or uh, there's a lot of good people, good teachers, good administrators, some who actually are members of our church. What I've always found interesting over the decades is that when we've had uh, professional educators in the public realm who are members of our church who have school-aged children is that, as far as I know, all of them home-educated. <laughs> like, why? look, this is the institution you run. Why don't you put your kids in there? So, um, with that said, bad company corrupts good morals. And when a nation loses its morals, it loses its mind. And that's where we are. It's just beyond belief some of the things that people say are right, things that we should be teaching, things that we should be espousing. But this is what happens when God judges a nation. Now, I'm not saying that home education is some magic bullet. Because if you have a parent who is a professing Christian but is compromised in their own thought life, they're exposing themselves to things that they've just gotten used to. It's a short throw, I think, before a lot of people will just get used to now the introduction of lesbianism and homosexuality on Hallmark. They'll just get used to it. And they lose their sharpness, and when they lose their sharpness, they lose their ability to really protect their children. And in the process, they can potentially lose their children and lose their standards. And so sometimes, you know, we've had people even in our own church who have home educated, and then I know what's going on in the background is there's compromise going on in their lives. And then it becomes uncomfortable to be around people with higher standards. And, and please understand, we're not one of these churches where if someone comes in and they're they have their kids in the public school. They're unwelcome. We want to reach people for Christ. But on the other hand, we recognize that if you put a child in public education beginning in kindergarten all the way through the 12th grade, and you expect as a general principle that the product is going to be godly, if that happens by chance, it won't be because of you, it will be in spite of you. Because there are too many biblical principles that are being violated. Don't be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Let's just say, for the sake of argument, none of these books are there, and every teacher was a Christian. The fact is, is that every child that goes there is not a Christian. And they're coming out of homes that are increasingly becoming pagan. And there's an education that the kids get in the schoolyard as they hang with their friends, as they're on various sports teams, that if it's not guarded and protected before real character is formed in their life, you're not going to win. In the 1940s, one national study indicated these were the top problems in public schools. Talking out of turn, chewing gum, running in the halls, making noise, not putting paper in the wastebaskets, and getting out of turn in line. 
Here's some of the top offenses today. Rape, robbery, assault, personal theft, drug abuse, arson, bombings, alcohol abuse, the carrying of weapons, absenteeism, vandalism, murder, extortion, gang warfare, pregnancies, abortion, suicide, STDs, lying and cheating, bullying, and gender dysphoria. What happened? There's been a slow, subtle drift. And it's reflected in every dimension of our culture. So number one, potentially, you can protect your children from the world. And a lot depends on you and your lifestyle and your commitment to Christ. Secondly, there in your outline, you can provide your child with a tutorial educational model. Um, in a class of, say, 20 or 30 students, not all, all the students can receive the attention and the assistance that is needed from one single person who's leading the class. And many teachers love it when they get that rare opportunity to give some one-on-one -on -one interaction. But more often than not, they feel frustrated. Many have told me that as they've come to these seminars over the years that they can't always give the attention that they'd like to give. And there's a certain degree of the herd instructional pattern and in that you have to teach 20 to 40 students, depending on your class size, all at once, and they're all learning at different paces. And some are very slow. Sometimes because they're slow, they're labeled, and had they had some one-on-one -on -one, uh, attention, maybe it would have been different. And others are quick, quick learners, and they're very bored and frustrated. Uh, add to that the biggest single problem that these public educators are facing, at least from what I've heard in Beaufort County, is basic discipline. Why? Because as the family breaks down, you lose that respect for authority. I mean, where is it that a child's supposed to learn to respect the teacher in school. He's supposed to learn that in the smallest microcosm of life, namely the home, where the father is the head of the home and the mother, who is to be loved as Christ loved the church, respects and submits to that authority. That's where a child is supposed to learn submission to governmental, ecclesiastical, educational, whatever expression of authority it may be. But now that's being thrown out the window in the churches. So we have gender blurring. Women can be pastors. Husband and wife, there's no real leader in the home anymore. And if you teach that as a pastor, you're viewed as narrow-minded, bigoted, misogynist, and everything else that you can think of. And so in the public schools, so many of these teachers, just if you know any of them, just, just ask them. They will tell you that a large portion of their day is dealing with discipline. And so it's very, very difficult just to teach. And two, I think what happens with the, the herd style of teaching is that you can uh, lose the love for learning. And so summer's here, oh, I don't have to study anymore. I don't have to read anymore. School's out. And I know kids need a break and all that, but... I'm just saying you want to cultivate a love for learning that just kind of goes around the clock. And I think that home education potentially can do that. 
So you're able to just provide that individual attention. And if someone asks what would be the catalog educational model, they'd say, well, a private tutor. I mean, that's like the super wealthy, that's what they have. A private tutor comes into the home and educates, you know, one or two children. Well, in many ways, and again, we'll see some different models and hybrids and so forth, that one-on-one tutorial model, which is many considers the Cadillac educational model, is uh, mimicked in, in home education. Third, a third advantage is you can provide your children with the curriculum that you want. You can provide them with the curriculum that you choose. Um, and again, you know, there are some subjects that, yeah, you, you want your kids to learn evolution. You should. You should teach them this is what they're hammering. And here's why it's wrong. You, you want to educate them. And I, and I just had lunch with a gentleman on, on Sunday after church. And he came down from another state. There are these three families and they live stream. And, and they all knew me. And they said, we're, but we're all friends. And they all came down. We went out to lunch. Anyway, he's an MIT Harvard graduate. Brilliant guy. And has started this organization you know, to help Christian, basically, educators know how to teach uh, the creation model and to refute uh, the heresies that are found in evolution. And, of course, he was very excited because this leader in the evolutionary model is just about convinced now that he's been teaching the wrong thing for 40 years. So sometimes... Um, Kids get a very one-sided education. They're obviously not going to be taught, well, why scientifically do not just Christians, but creationists who are not always born again hold to a different form of creation? What's the scientific evidence behind that? And when you're in charge of your children's education, you can help them to understand why these other models need to be refuted. Because if you don't teach them on that level, then typically when they get to college, they won't have an answer. Now, if they're real Christians, that's not going to mean they're going to dissolve. And, you know, you read all these stats by Barna and others that, you know, 70% of evangelicals walk away from the faith when they get to college. That's because they're not converted. That's the only reason they walk away from the faith, because it's not a real conversion. If they were of us, they would have remained with us, but the fact that they went out from us shows they were not really of us to begin with. So we have this Christianity light, 20-minute sermons, no expositional teaching, kids who say they want to be baptized, no one ever surveys their heart to see if they understand basic biblical truth and and they're baptized, and then they get to college, and the cage of protection is gone, and they run in the opposite direction. You're going to get that even in the best churches. But when it's the pattern of an evangelical church, it's usually a reflection of weak elder leadership in the local assembly. But nonetheless, it's great when your child can stand up and give an answer to say, hey, look, you know, Henry Mars, who was a leading um, professor at the Harvard of the West Coast, he, he didn't believe in evolution. In fact, he believed that the world was made with the appearance of, uh, uh, of age. 
and that the worldwide flood would account for the fossil record as we have it. Of course, he's no lightweight, having headed a major chair at Stanford. He's dead now, but still, um, he had a powerful, powerful voice that a lot of people never heard, but we can provide those for our children. Two, what you can also do when you home educate with the curriculum is you can um, provide an environment where your child can excel. Sometimes in a group setting, one child is behind because they don't understand a concept, and at some point the teacher needs to move on. And so the child begins to get behind. When in reality, had some focused time been given to that child, sooner or later they would have mastered what you're trying to teach them. Now, sometimes, you know, when you start with your children, especially if they have already been in public education, is you may find out that they're woefully behind. And so there are some tests that they can take. Let's say you're educating them in the sixth grade, and you're going to start them in sixth grade math or English. The question is, are they worthy of a sixth and sixth grade math and English curriculum? So there's some tests you can take, and sometimes we've had parents discover, oh, actually, my sixth grader is actually at a third grade level in math. That's okay. That's where you start, and you move them along, and, um, and you help uh, meet their needs. A fourth advantage to home education is that you can provide your child with a flexible environment for learning. Obviously, the government school system is eight hours long, um, excluding the time that it takes to get your children there and back. Um, they often come home and have some homeschool requirements. Uh, they often sit in an environment that's dull, boring, cold, uncomfortable, <laughs> and unruly, uh, whereby law you're actually only required to educate your children four and a half hours a day. But again, they, they, they're dealing with a herd um, they're, they're dealing now with, you know, parents who are at work all day because we've basically jettisoned God's model that the husband is the provider. And my hat is off to any woman who has to work to put food on the table. But is that God's ideal? Of course not. Scripture is clear. And so... Um, you know, add to that, the kids are there for after-school programs and other things, and they're gone all day. When, if you educate them at home, what we've found, especially in the lower grades, in the lower grades, it's just remarkable how fast they learn. So when you're dealing, say, with a first or second grader, uh, for every grade level, there's what's called a scope and sequence. This is everything a first grader is supposed to know, a second grader, third grader, fourth grader. That used to be in the back of World Book Encyclopedia. Um, the scope and sequence for every grade level. Um, I don't think they print encyclopedias anymore, do they? And, uh, uh, but, but there are books. What your first grader needs to know, there's actually a book entitled that. What your second grader, some of them are in our library. And so if you know, well, this is the goal for the scope and, scope and sequence for this year, then you kind of have a, an idea of where you should be heading. Very often in those early years, we found by February, we did everything. It would take the public schools to the end of May to do. 
And when they're in those young grades, again, technically four and a half hours a day, but that was usually two hours of seat work, at least in our home. Now, as they got older, um, the requirements went up in terms of what, was, what they needed. Um, but nonetheless, uh, it doesn't take as much as people sometimes think. Is it easy? No. It's hard, and that's why you should come tomorrow night when my wife is speaking. And she'll be speaking primarily with a view towards home educators, but to all the women of the church who want to come, basically how to deal with stress. Because sometimes people just quit because the circumstances are difficult. Anything in life that is typically worthwhile is very often difficult. You have to persevere through it. But again, when you are in control, you can really orchestrate the day, what it looks like. We would always um, try to combine school with work and ministry. So we had a, the formal education part. There was a work part. We, we believe that children need to know how to work. And so we provided work for our children. And as they got older, we looked for opportunities where they could earn money. Uh, we looked for other avenues, even for our daughter, you know, that were related to her gender. Because we wanted them to excel and be equipped when they would leave our home. Um, and again, when you're in charge, you know, you've got a lot of flexibility. Oh, we're going to go to the grandparents in Massachusetts. We're just going to take our homeschool with us. We homeschool in the morning, and we got, you know, we, we want to take our vacation in February. Okay, you know, so there, there's a lot of potential flexibility. A fifth advantage is you can provide your children with an environment for character growth, for character growth. Deuteronomy chapter 6 says, uh, I think I went a little too fast. Here it is. That, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. And the, and the Lord is one. This is called the Shema. First word in the sentence is Shema, the Hebrew word for hear. So every Saturday across the world, Jewish people, when they gather, they read the Shema. Is this an important commandment? When Jesus was questioned in Matthew 22, what's the most important of all the commandments? He quotes the Shema. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might, these words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. So if you're not with your children, it's obviously more challenging to be able to flesh this out. And students who are in a public education setting, they're often subject to peer pressure, to group think, and it's very, very challenging. The scripture says in Proverbs 13 and verse 20, he who walks with wise men will be wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. And so foolishness is wrapped up in the heart of a child. And so when they're with foolish children, they witness foolish behavior and and they very often become foolish, and you can't really control that when you don't have them. And the opportunity for character development is not impossible, but it is certainly diminished. 
And I would say, too, that to some extent that's true of a Christian school. Now, if people ask me, you know, are you in favor of the public school? I'd say, well, no. I'm not in favor of it. Why? Because they have an agenda. What's the agenda? They want to capture the hearts of your children. They want your children participating in sex in the middle school and in the high schools. And they want to learn, teach your children about transgenderism and preferred pronouns. That's what they want to do. It's not like in the 1960s when still to some respect the Judeo-Christian ethic and the salt and the light that it had in preserving righteousness was still there amongst the pagans, meaning the non-Christians. Now the pagans are thoroughly pagan. And they don't have any problem with this way of thinking. There's still moral non-Christians in America. But the public school system is not in favor of them. I mean, look what our government did in Virginia. They, they, they labeled some of these parents terrorists. And I hope some of them who are suing win. Terrorists for standing up against the Loudoun School Board because of some of the things their kids were being taught, it's almost beyond belief. The challenge with a Christian school is there's two kinds of Christian schools. There's Christian schools with open enrollment and closed enrollment. An open enrollment Christian school says anyone can come. In other words, there doesn't have to be any Christian history in the lives of the parents for your children to participate. Again, the challenge with that is you send your child to a Christian school and you've got this parent who also sends them to that school who are not born again, may not even attend church anywhere. In fact, sometimes and more often than not, they were not received well in the public school, and so they had no other place to go. And I'm grateful for those schools that feel like that's their calling. The question is, how is your child going to do in that environment? Add to that, uh, you have what's called a closed school Christian environment. And by that, it means at least one, depending on the school, or both, need to be confessing born-again Christians. And if they're not, we understand, but we're not the school for you. And again, the challenge behind the Christian school is, for the most part, is very expensive. And most people don't have the finances to pull it off. But even if they did, they need to be very careful because there may be influences on their children that they end up not liking. I mean, I remember having two parents in my office some years back, and they were going to Hilton Head Christian Academy, and they were in tears because it was there that their child was being exposed to pornography through other students. And now these kids carry porn on their phones. And very creatively, it looks like an app, like a Bible app, but it's really not a Bible app. Behind the Bible app is some social media thing where there's all kinds of immorality. 
mean, Satan disguises himself like an angel of light. So you have to, you know, weigh that. And again, I'm thankful for the Christian schools, especially those with, with high, high standards. But you've got to be careful. Um, people often ask, well, what about socialization if our kids are home all day? Well, your kids are going to be socialized if you live in planet Earth. The question is, what kind of socialization are they going to get? Now, it might be that if you live in Wyoming or Montana and your closest neighbor is two miles away, that you're going to be their key socialite. Well, that's okay. You're their parents. And assuming you're obedient to the Scriptures and you're active in a born-again, Bible-believing church as God commands us, then they're also going to get socialization on that level as well. Okay, legally, the legality of homeschooling. The legality of homeschooling. Well, the Supreme Court, a long time ago, declared the right, fundamental right of a parent to educate their child in all 50 states. However, what that fleshes out to is different from state to state. And so here's a map. If you go to a website, and it's on your outline there, it's called the Homeschool Legal Defense Association. Now, when we came to South Carolina, that, that particular group was a great blessing because in 1991, we already had parents in Community Bible Church who were being challenged with the legality of their ability to homeschool. And so I was able to pick up the phone and Actually talked to the president in those days, and they put an attorney on us, and, and within a matter of hours, their rights were protected. Why? Because the local school board was making rules that just weren't legal. For instance, they had people who were coming to inspect the homes of homeschoolers. And uh, they went to some families over in Hilton Head who had come to our seminar, and they were very wealthy families, and they decided to homeschool, and they had a dedicated room for homeschooling where some other parents were homeschooling at their kitchen table. And this one administrator said, that's not sufficient. This is not a proper environment for your school child. Well, who says? Picked up the phone, called HSLDA. It was resolved and rectified. Now the, the county has a much different view. But there was, there was real hostility. Now the hostility that was here is now coming back across America. I am on a board, I'm on the advisory board, and it represents 300 Christian homeschool organizations in America. We have meetings from time to time, and what's happening is not good. There's a growing hostility just towards Christians in America. But again, the Supreme Court protects your right to homeschool, but you have to do it legally. So if you go to HSLDA, you can click on the different colors. They represent the various um, expressions of uh, friendliness towards homeschooling. Uh, South Carolina is a great state to homeschool in. But if you click on any of you, the state that you live on, if you're live streaming somewhere else in the country, it will tell you what the homeschool law is for your particular state. So I'm just going to cover tonight South Carolina, but if you're live streaming later on or tonight in another state, you can go there and find out the specifics as it relates to you. Um, option number one is you can 
a homeschool under the homeschool statute where you are considered a public homeschool. And the statute states that parents may teach their children at home if the instruction is approved by the district board of trustees. Um, of course, the board shall approve your application if you include in your application the following um, steps that you're going to meet. That you teach the required subjects, maintain records showing your, that you actually are homeschooling, you submit a semi-annual progress report, and you ensure your students has access to library facilities, and you have the child tested annually. If you meet those requirements and you decide to become a public homeschool, they have to approve you. Now, in some states, there's a growing hostility. And again, they, they um, in terms of curriculum, are being oppressive. And some, there's some cases going on right now that are being challenged. We're not facing that problem right now in South Carolina. We have a great governor. He's a born-again Christian. He's very much in favor of home education and wants to do everything in his power to protect it. You're a public homeschool. Do they want you to become a public homeschooler? Yes and no. There's a certain hassle that they have to now monitor you, but 25% of the federal funds they now receive because you're a public homeschool. Option number two is you join an organization called SCASE. That stands for the South Carolina Association of Independent Home Schools. Um, again, there are certain requirements to be able to homeschool. You have to have a high school diploma or a GED. Now, we had a lady in our church, uh, Joanne, I won't say her last name because it's, she hasn't been here for 25 years. She was here in the Navy with her husband and but Joanne was actually teaching down the street at a Christian school. I don't even know if they're still open. I think they are, but the down the street at a Christian school. And then she decided she wanted to homeschool because it had open enrollment and her kids were getting a lot of negative influences that she didn't like and she wanted to take them home and kind of guard them. And she was told she couldn't homeschool because she didn't have a college degree. Well, actually, under South Carolina law, all you needed was a GED. And again, um, she had a high school diploma, so she was able to homeschool. But I thought it was interesting and that it raised in my mind an issue in that when she was over there at the Christian school, whether you had a college degree or a GED or no degree at all was a non-issue. You didn't even have to have a GED. Why? Because under the Constitution of the United States, there's a religious protection and there's a religious freedom that if you can meet the requirements of the states in terms of educational needs, that you don't need an official degree and that's protected as a religious freedom. But then when she decided to leave that, she could teach 30 schools, 30 kids in her classroom, but she couldn't teach three. And so um, it was issues like that that caused this organization's case to start. 
And I became close friends with the founder as it was launched because at the same time, we were launching a private association and we shared notes and thoughts. SCASE has a fee. It's $385 for your first child. The prices are outlined there, $55 for the second and third child. No additional charge for four more children. There's also a high school senior fee, a special needs fee, so on. Um, and again, this is an association where you uh, meet, again, the standard requirements. You educate your kids four and a half hours a day, 185 days a year. Uh, you submit 180 days a year. You submit um, quarterly reports that show you're actually homeschooling, and you have your child tested once a year. That's a legal option. There are fees involved to it. Then you can join your third option is what's called a private homeschool association. We were actually Community Bible Church Christian Academy, the first private Christian homeschool association in the state. And so again, I went to HSLDA and said, I don't want to join SCASE. What, um, maybe I should mention her name because it's going over the year, but I don't want to do what she's doing. I want to start my own. And uh, I said, well, why should we have all these fees involved? And Again, there was an additional fee, too. You had to join HSLDA, which we actually required in the early years at Community Bible Church Christian Academy because it was basically legal insurance such that if anyone ever challenged you in your right to homeschool, all your legal and court costs are paid for. And some, actually, families still carry that. Uh, it's um, a, a minimal fee. Um, there was a group fee, which I think was 85, and the individual fee was 100. I'm, I'm not sure what the fee is right now, but it's around there. Um, oh, there it is. It's written on there. Yeah, there it is. So you have those fees. So that's not necessarily a bad thing, but Community Bible Church Christian Academy, we have a double layer of protection in that, A, we're a religious private association. So we're protected religiously the way we legally constructed it which uh, we had to demonstrate that the people who are a member of the academy are somehow connected to us religiously, and based on the counsel we got, you had to be a member of Community Bible Church. To have a private association, you need a minimum of 50 families. Of course, we go way past that. Um, so if you're, if you're looking for a private one, and you're not a member of Community Bible Church, that won't work for you. To be a member of Community Bible Church, you have to be a confessing Christian. That's a problem for some people, but I'm happy to introduce them to Christ if I'm given that chance. In either case, um, uh, that's, those are your three options in the state of South Carolina. Not really complicated. So how do you get started? You investigate the state laws, you choose a curriculum, you commit your way to the Lord, and you start. Now, what is available today that was not available when we started, one is a plethora of curriculums uh, when we started in the 1980s. And by the way, what we discovered is our very first child, just to tell you his story, his name is Jeremy, and we enrolled him in a Christian school uh, for kindergarten. He's the only one who ever went to a Christian school. He went there for kindergarten. And um, the next year, his brother, who's right behind him, was going to go to kindergarten, and Jeremy would be enrolled in first grade. So what it looked like is 
we were going to drive in the morning, drop off two, come back at noon, pick up the kindergarten, come back at three and pick up the first grader. And, um, but at the same time, we were reading, my wife had found this book in the church library by Dr. Moore, and she thought, I heard Dr. James Dobson mention this book. So I'd come home at night, and after my brain had been saturated with Hebrew and Greek, she'd read me a chapter. By the time I got to the third chapter, I said, we're going to homeschool next year. She said, we are. I said, yeah, we are. We're going to homeschool next year. Keep reading the book. And so, again, back then, there weren't like all these curriculums. You pretty much mastered your own. They had some Christian school curriculums, like a Becca and stuff, but that was made for a classroom of 30, not for catered for, you know, an individual. But eventually, those organizations began to make materials for home educators because the market was growing so fast. Um, there would be challenging subjects sometimes that maybe my wife didn't feel qualified to teach. And so I would sometimes at night help with the math. Um, you know, I, I went all the way through calculus, and so I was able to teach my kids. But people say, well, what about calculus? Only 5% of the high school students in America take calculus. So I wouldn't be too concerned about that. In terms of the SAT, all they need for the SAT is geometry, algebra 1, and algebra 2. So that's what you want them to master. Geometry, algebra one, algebra two. Is trig or calculus on it? No. So if they master that, they'll be in good shape to score high on those tests that will provide potential scholarships and other things along the way. Um, but uh, sometimes, too, families would get together and they say, hey, why don't we get five families together and we'll do a science class together. And they did some things like that. And then when they got into the high school level, um, we saw that there was, we, we found out no one had done this before. So again, th this was all new ground. And so we went down to the Technical College of the Low Country and we asked if we could uh, enroll our kids in a, a chemistry class, a college level chemistry class. And I said, look, if, if you don't think they're good students, you can throw them out in a week but I'm willing to pay the tuition, and so on and so forth. And, and so we enrolled them in a chemistry class, and what did we do? We, we were giving them exposure to what it would be like in a college-level course. So they had a syllabus, they had assignments, they had tests, they had quizzes, and um, all of my kids had anywhere from a half a year to one year of college credit by the time they graduated from high school. We had one family in our church when he graduated from Community Bible Church Christian Academy on a Friday, and the next morning on a Saturday, he graduated from uh, the Technical College of the Low Country with an associate's degree. Um, but it's not uncommon to knock off now an entire year of college credit, either through AP courses or uh, other. Now they've restricted that to the 10th, 11th, and 12th grade. In the early years, you could actually get in there in the 9th grade. But again, what it allows you to do is you homeschool them through those classes, and you, you get them to take the core classes. You know, there's no sense in taking basket weaving 101, and that that's just an elective. 
get them to take the core classes, math 101, English 101, you know, things like that, so that when they go to college, those are already knocked out and they don't have to even deal or address those. And again, you're able to save some, some money along the way. Um, so those are the main broad sweeps, but now there is all kinds of other things like we, for instance, have a co-op in our church. Community Bible Church Christian Academy has a co-op. Not everyone uses it, but some of our families do. Where they come and you, you can't, it's not a drop-off center. You're there with your child and, or children and uh, they're learning a subject under a teacher and then they have assignments and homeworks and so they're there and they do that two days a week and then three days a week they're doing all the assignments in the home. There's all kinds of hybrids now that are available now. Our, our, our co-op is full for the fall. So it's full. Um, but there's other hybrids. And again, um, that's maybe not something you want to do initially anyway. And I will say that if you're just starting homeschooling, Miss Claudia is here in the back. She's the administrator for the academy. And uh, we will often set someone up with someone who's a veteran homeschooler. So you're starting with a third grader saying, and you say, I've, n- I've never homeschooled before, and can you set me up with someone? And we will. Someone who's already home educated successfully, say a third grader. So they can kind of mentor you through the process and help you and encourage you. If you're just starting and you've got a kindergartner or a first grader or whatever, you're talking about an hour seat work a day, five days a week, an hour. I know you have to do four and a half hours. You can be creative. Um, go out and look at flowers. But we're, we're, we're talking about an hour, an hour a day when they're like in first and second grade. But what are you doing? You're creating a hunger to learn. So you, you, you find subjects that just captivate their interests. So like, for instance, we had raccoons in the backyard. And these raccoons came in and and uh, my wife said, My, these, these little critters are fascinating. And, and we were feeding them oatmeal cookies. And then one night, this raccoon came in with a, a jaw open like that. And I said, oh, that doesn't look good. I think that has rabies. And, and um, so my wife went to the library with the kids, and they got books on raccoons. And one of the um, requirements and one of the scope and sequences that year was charting. And so they created a chart. Things we read in books about car- raccoons, things we observed about raccoons. And then like in English, let's write a letter to your grandparents about what you're seeing. So what were you doing? Well, you're working in grammar and language structure. And so, you know, there, there's a combination of things that sometimes you can pull together, especially when you have the big picture of the scope and sequence and what you're trying to uh, accomplish along the way. So um, there's all kinds of hybrids, all kinds of tools. There's um, like one of my children took uh, Spanish. I had had four years of French, but he wanted to learn Spanish, Jordan. So they had, you know, the computer DVDs and he took Spanish. And he goes up to USC and I wasn't convinced he was going to place out of Spanish, but he did. He placed out of Spanish off of that DVD. Thank God it was a miracle. But, you know, uh, but, you know there, there's, there's a lot of things that are available to your children. 
and they can excel. They can do very, very well. Your children ought to be able to do very well because you are patient, you're catering the education, you're, you're working with them until they master the skill. And when they get to uh, high school, you can baptize some of those high grades that you've given by allowing them to take college courses where if they can, can get an A at USCB or at um, the technical college, then that adds strength to the transcript that you've created, not to mention a high SAT score. And that puts them in a position for potentially a lot of uh, scholarship money because college is expensive. And my counsel to parents all the time and to students is come out of college debt-free. And if you're going to spend or borrow money, borrow it on the graduate degree, but not on the undergraduate degree. Because a graduate degree today, unless you have a skill, and I don't diminish a skill, it's the men that have skills in our nation that make so much things, so many things happen. One young man came in this year for a senior appointment and he said, I'm, I want to become a welder. I said, man, that's fantastic. I had seen this thing on Fox News and they're screaming for welders, starting them at $75,000 a year. I said, these other people are coming out of college with a degree in art history and they can't get a job and they have $120,000 worth of debt. So, you know, um, there's nothing wrong with a skill. It's a great thing. But if you, unless you have a technical ability that God's inclined you with, um, today, without a college degree, you've limited yourself, unless you're going into a family business or you're industrious and you can start your own company of some kind, you've limited yourself to limited, limited wage jobs. And that's difficult to raise a family on. So you have to get a college degree. But you don't have to come out with mega debt. You can come out with minimal debt, and that's what you want to do.